as the case may be if you're from the Ozarks, but, um, but, but, uh, but it, that's all right. I mean, I'm able to just jump into it and set it off today because not only uh, do, uh, you know, most of, m- most of us on the uh, pastoral committee owe uh, Mark Trotter royalties, kind of, kind of royalties in advance for what we're going to steal from him from this uh, conference, but also uh, I owe him a setup fee because, uh, you know, a, a couple of days ago I was looking over, you know, what I had planned to go through today, and man, I, Sunday night, I was just really discouraged. I thought, you know, I need to throw all this out. Uh, it's not even going to be intelligible, and then boom, Mark sets me up last night, and so now you're going to be able to understand the things that you wouldn't have been able to understand because Mark just walked us all through that uh, last night. And so, uh, so we'll, we're in a good spot to start off together. If you get uh, Acts chapter 20, your left hand, Second um, Timothy chapter 4 in your right hand. And uh, I want to devote some time today to what I call the ideology behind our theology so we can unpack this, this issue of inscripturation. And uh, hope to open your eyes to the scholars and the scriptures, uh, as well as what we talked about last time, the scribes and their scrolls. So the apostle Paul prophesied about a coming apostasy as early uh, as his second preserved epistle, which would have been 2 Thessalonians. And so here's, here's our thesis for today's study. In the last days of falling away from sound doctrine is predicted to occur. Paul says there would come a falling away, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, meaning a falling away from the faith. And then he adds, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Because later, on his journey to Jerusalem, Paul calls the elders from Ephesus to meet him as he's traveling back to Jerusalem. And here in Acts chapter 20, he tells them in verse 30, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Okay, you know, it's amazing how the, how the Bible, how the Word of God will define history for you and therefore define the way that you ought to categorize uh, certain things that you see in history. Uh, you know, a lot is made in textual criticism of the Alexandrian school and the, therefore, better manuscripts that they came up with. But I tell you what, Origen, Alexandria, they, they, were, they were known for nothing uh, if they were not known for wanting to draw disciples away to themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So let me hit you with this definition. Apostasy is an abandonment or a renunciation of religious belief of some type of some kind. In his, now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in his last penned epistle, uh, Paul says to Timothy, his own son in the faith, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having DVDs and workbooks? 
and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now turn to 1 Timothy 6, back, at, back at up one epistle, 1 Timothy 6. So even in Paul's day, apostasy was being built. But since you're not yet feeling me like Paul and I need you to, can, can, can I let Paul give you an experiential exegesis of how apostasy works? Before I exegete the scripture or this subject, let's exegete your experience because it will give an explanation. Because later on in his labors, Paul points out three ways that apostasy is working. It's working right now. Number one, false scholarship is exalted above the scriptures. Uh, we're, we're not, we are not really unscientific, but they say we are. And, that's, uh, and, and they say that science opposes us, in, whether you're talking about science creationism or the science of textual criticism. And just like physical persecution, mental Gnosticism has, has been a deal ever since the beginning. Okay, watch, 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, keep, guard, watch over, preserve, uh, republish get out that which is committed to thy trust how do you do that by avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called the greek word there translated science is gnosis gnosis means knowledge but in this context it does not mean bible knowledge it does not mean bible data gleaned from bible research that's what they used to do in the Philadelphian church age. No, it means hidden, mysterious, secretive, seductive knowledge that the religious elite claimed that they knew about Jesus. The, the best analogy today is what goes on in, in so-called, in, in Christian psychology, fa falsely so-called, and therapeutic counseling, and the mumbo-jumbo they come up with to, to try and make you think. Well, you know, the, here's the thing I know that you don't know. Uh, in this case, historically, they're either saying that Jesus was a phantom and not man, or he was man and not divine. In other words, um, Buddhist, Buddhist ideas read back in. That's what we've got in our psychology today. And check this, because here's how they roll. This is our first point for study. False teachers place their own interpretations on Christian truth by, by reading human ideas into it. This tendency grew, it increased until a system we now give the name Gnosticism to was entrenched. In other countries, in other cultures, on other continents, it was called Buddhism and Taoism and Shintoism and Hinduism. And it was all, it was, you know, in that religious setting, it was the idea of a multiplicity of deities and that true good could not be associated with reality. And the only way to really explain the randomness was this multi multiplicity of deities that just kind of act on their own whim. So reality is something defined by their cult leader who follows demonic teaching, or it is found by looking in your own heart. Now that's just as good because your heart is corrupt and deceives you all the time. So in the scholarly realm of biblical criticism, educated men and women take history in which God's hand can be seen, and they read into it 
an evolutionary philosophy. Why? Just to keep up with the Kardashians. Here's how we got to keep up with, with the current Kardashians today. Biology had a revolution called evolution. Uh, politics had a revolution. Marxist socialism. Psychology, and, and, and Pastor Mark went through all of this last night, you remember? Psychology went through a, a revolution, psychotherapy. Well, religion needs to have a revolution too. We've got to have some revolutionary idea or thought or discovery in order to keep up. And it needs to follow along with the other soft sciences like counseling and psychiatry. Now turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. You know, hard sciences, hard science, that's tough to budge. I mean, mathematics tends to give you an answer of certainty every time. Uh, theology used to, but not for over a century now. Uh, we called them the fundamentals until someone stole our name like the Romans stole the name Christian to mean something else. Evangelicalism used to give an answer of certainty, but now we, have, we are the new Romans in every respect, and the res this results in what Paul calls vain babblings and false science. Then on the other hand, apostasy is already at work because this is number two, the literal meaning of scripture is spiritualized away. 2 Timothy 2 verse 16. Paul says, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Now, he said that even before Facebook and all the, all the stuff that you put on your feed. Now, now, he says, their word will eat as doth a canker. Uh, you know, not just, I think, the idea will corrupt your mind. It'll take up your time. It'll just deflect you from God's eternal purpose. It'll take you away from getting the gospel to people. And he, and he names names of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth of our erred. Because they're saying that the resurrection is past already. And so they overthrow the faith of some. They say the church is going to have to go through the tribulation. Or at least a great tribulation or whatever. Another way prominent teachers say that the resurrection is past is to teach. Like theologian N.T. Wright uh, does, like, like former pastor Rob Bell does, like pastor Andy Stanley does, that it does not matter there was no historical Adam, there was, doesn't matter there was no tree in Genesis. Uh, they are convinced by skeptical scholars two million Israelites did not exit Egypt. The walls of Jericho did not fall down for Joshua. But they say that's okay. And overthrow the faith of some. Because they say what's important is the spiritual truth that's being taught in any specific passage. Now turn to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, turning the Bible into an allegory became a real passion for some of the imperial church fathers. 
uh, just as it has for, you know, some of our silver-tongued orators in megachurches today. It is, a, it is a passion of today's theologians and evangelical book writers uh, due to old Gnosticism being applied through new Buddhism. So there is apostasy, there is allegory, and let me hit you with this definition to allegorize scripture. And, and Pastor Mark referred to this last night. It means you make scriptural principles and events representative of your own personal ideas, concepts, and opinions. I mean, it's not exactly like they find something, you know, allegory, you would think, well, they find something analogous. It's just an illustration. It's, you know, here's a metaphor for what's going on. No, they just make stuff up as they go along that sounds good to them based upon the way they want it to be. So in our day allegorizing is not only a passion it is also a refuge from absolute truth third apostasy is already working baby because this is number three psychology is substituted for scripture human philosophy is substituted for systematic theology watch watch colossians 2 watch verse 8 beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit then follows the two things vain philosophy has to do with. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not, not after Christ. So the biggest enemies against the infant church were not found in triumphant heathenism. The biggest enemies were found in the flood of heresy from combining Christianity and classical Greek philosophy, which just, you know, I guess in terms of history, God's sense of sarcasm, that combination of classical Greek philosophy with Christianity didn't take place in the Greek-speaking world. It took place in Egypt, a type or picture of the world from Alexandria. You know, they took the attitude that, look, all truth is God's truth. So we used to believe the Bible held all the answers. We used to believe it was a manual for the human life, but then we, led, we, were, we read Plato. We played with Plato, and we read Plato, and we, we read Aristotle and some quack's interpretation of brain science, falsely so-called. And since what Aristotle and Caroline Leaf say have some truth in it, it must be of God. So, so these three things, plus the way that superstitious paganism supplanted biblical literalism, are what brought in the dark ages. Now turn to Proverbs chapter 22. All truth is God's truth. But the Bible is the absolute standard to define what truth is and define what to do with it. That's why the Bible is sufficient. We have, in effect... Thrown the Bible out whenever we stop viewing it as the mind of God for humanity today and therefore as God's handbook on the human life. So if you're here and you're not asleep, I know just what you're asking. Look, Alan, if we give our lives to advancing the message of the Bible, how do we know the Bible we have is the actual words of God? And I take you to Proverbs 22, verse 20 and 21 again would say, have I not written to thee excellent things and count? God's asking the question through Solomon. And it's a rhetorical question demanding the answer, yes. 
Yes, God, you did write excellent things in counsels and knowledge if you're reading from almost any other translation besides the King James. It, it talks about something about 30 things. Why? That's not how the Hebrew reads. Well, it was because there was some pharaoh in Egypt that made a list of 30 things, and so they think Solomon is picking up on that. Well, whatever. God says, I wrote excellent things in counsels and knowledge, Bible principles, the, the data, scripture, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee. Many pastors today completely negate the results of their preaching because they cannot point to the certainty of the words of truth. They get up and they preach at you something they really don't intellectually believe they have. Now, now, now I would say... If, if they can't understand the arguments and they will set aside the, ba the bad ideas and just preach it from a position of faith like that, well, that's fine. That's, but that's not what I'm talking about. And so here's our second point for study. Anytime you take away from the authority of Scripture, you lose the anointedness of the Spirit. Help me, Holy Spirit. There it is. That does not mean you cannot successfully build a church using an NIV, but it does mean you will not be successful at building the kind of Philadelphian church God wants to have in a Laodicean age. So I want to summarize some of the technical material we looked at yesterday. I want to take the same, some of the same material. I want to see what Jesus himself said, what the disciples believed, and what the role of Satan is, therefore what the battle is all about. Ready, set, go. Let's look first, this is Roman numeral one, at the scholars in the scriptures. Um, get, uh, get Hebrews chapter 10, John chapter 5, Matthew 22, and all these, I think all the references are listed on your handout you ought to automatically go to the next one uh, after we look at, uh, at, the, at the previous. So how is it that we can remain victorious through this battle? There is an ideology behind our theology. What about the reality in history? There were discoveries, as we're going to see. As, as Pastor Mark talked about last night in the 1840s, there were discoveries. There was a disaster when certain men, even saved men, acted on their unbelief. But there are answers and there is an argument that we want to give you and make sure you get as a result of this session. So Genesis chapter 18 verse 14 says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Psalm 100 verse 5, for the Lord is good all the time. All the time, God is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth. His truth endureth to all generations. So first, letter A, what Jesus himself said. The first reason I know the Bible I have in my hands is the very words of God is because of the nature of Scripture itself. And we can know the Bible's nature from what Jesus said about it. Hebrews 10, verse 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book it's written of me. In the scroll of the roll, it stands written of me, and that is what I came to do. Jesus was not a critic of the words in his Bible. 
And if we should be, if you should be, well, then he would have showed us that. Booyah. Paul was not a critic of the words in his Bible. If we should be, I mean, he wrote the church epistles. Uh, he would, t- you know, he does say, "Be suspicious." All those changes, stuff that's twisted, taken away. Look carefully and uh, critically at church history, so that you can see. I mean, the, the big thing isn't textual criticism; it's the fact that we don't do history criticism in order to see what Alexandria was and what they were doing with Bibles there. So, 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 so Jesus affirms what the Bible says, as in John 5, verse 39. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. You think you have eternal life in the Torah apart from the teacher. Well, think again, because if you search there, you're going to find me. That is why you have life in the scriptures. Because they witness to the Savior. What happens if we don't search the Scriptures? Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err. Why? You don't know the Scriptures? And you know, the idea that of having biblical authority is tied to the power of God. And you miss that. So if you don't search the scriptures, you're making a big mistake because here's our third point for study. You do not have God's power if you do not have God's words. Now Matthew 21, if you happen to be there, just back up a chapter. Uh, Knowing the certainty of the words of truth is critical. Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures? And then he goes on to quote Psalm 118, verse 22. And even after 1,100 years of copying, recopying, without the benefit of digitization and computers, the Old Testament available to the chief priests and elders was regarded as God's words by God's Son, and he ought to know. It was something they could lay their hands on, they could read with their own eyes. Turn to John chapter 2. Jesus was not a textual critic. He simply affirmed the scripture as they then stood in time in the hands of his people. Well, what about his apostles, though? This letter B. What did the, what did the disciples believe? When the disciples were with their rabbi in the way of the master, following in his dust, Sometimes they had a hard time understanding what he was teaching. John 2, verse 22, When therefore he was risen, for Jesus was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Okay, here's a good one. Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 27 And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus Jesus expounded unto them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, verse uh, verse 32, and they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he walked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? Turn to 1 Timothy 5. They remembered it was written in their Old Testament. And when they put that together with the words of the Lord himself, it led them to believe their Bible. 
So the disciples were not critics of the Bible. They did not add, eliminate, or change words based upon what they thought the original said. And, and neither did the scribes at the temple who were keeping track of those things. No, as a matter of fact, Jesus and Earth's earliest apostles were CSAO. They were not KJVO because it wasn't invented yet. They were CSAO, current scripture available only. They were not OMO, original manuscript only. They were not ESVO. They, were, they weren't even TRO. They were CSAO. Now here's our fourth point for study. In the Bible, there are no examples of textual criticism because the Levitical priests were practicing textual preservation instead. So not only did chief priests and elders have scripture, the disciples also had scripture. They were not textual critics of the scripture. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. Watch what Paul does. Watch what Paul do. Uh, for, for the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and, and you could supply the ellipsis, and the scripture saith, the labor is worthy of his reward. Wait, hold it, stop. In one verse, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox. And he quotes Luke 10, verse 7. The laborer is worthy of his reward, and he calls them both scripture. One half of that verse was 1,555 years old. The other was maybe 20 years old. Still later. Jude verses 17 and 18 quotes 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3 with the authority of Scripture. Now go back to Genesis chapter 3. None of the disciples were textual critics, but there is someone who deigns to stand up and criticize God's Word. And this is where Pastor Mark did such a great job setting me up today. So this letter C, the role of Satan. Genesis 3 verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Okay, so he comes in the form of a serpent. There are reasons for that. A serpent? A serpent, uh, I th you know, the, uh, the Old Testament word that, you know, the Old Testament word is froward, which means serpent doesn't move forward or backwards. He moves by slithering, side to side. That's froward. Okay. Uh, and, and, and? And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said? I mean, Eve, did God really say what inspired Adam told you? I mean, inspired Adam. I mean, you've lived with him long enough. Uh, you know that, you know, did God really say that? I mean, was, was that in the original? Are you sure you didn't miss something in Adam's translation? I mean, after all, no mere mortal human being can know the thoughts of God. God was using imperfect, well, let's say at least, just before the pre-fall, let's say at least limited human language to convey his divine ideas. And maybe the receptor language was not adequate to express God's true meaning. And besides, you can't perfectly translate from one language to another anyway. Yea, hath God said. And that's the same way that critics plant seeds of doubt in the minds of Christians today. 
They do it by opening up for question the accuracy and the clarity of the text of God's word. Because here's our fifth point for study. If the devil can get you to doubt God's word, he's moved you away from a position of faith. Now these are, these are simple propositions I'm giving you. Just like the gospel. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it's simplicity itself. It's not, as, as we heard last night, not simplistic, it's, it's simp- simplicity. If Satan, okay, now check this. If you're, if you're taking any note, you ought, to, you ought to think about writing this down. If Satan cannot keep you from trusting God for salvation, he's going to struggle to get you to stop trusting God in the Scriptures. If he can't keep you from trusting God to get saved, he will struggle to keep you from trusting God in the Scriptures because that will wipe out your strength for ministry. That is his role. I mean, he's always doing what he's done from the beginning. That is why we can use biblical authority to define life. So you better recognize, or redneckanize, as the case may be, Because if you ever do find an error in your Bible, it will not be the Holy Ghost that showed it to you. So letter D, what's the battle all about? Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is what the fuss is all about. Satan hates God's written word just like he hated God's incarnate word, Jesus. He wants people to be confused about the nature and purpose of the Bible just like he wants them to be confused about the nature and purpose of Jesus. He wants lost people to be confused about the nature and purpose of Jesus and save people if they do get saved. Then make them confused about the nature and purpose of the Bible. He wants you to be facing both ways, running around unsure of truth, therefore uncertain how to act, unsure of ourselves, so that we are unsure of him. So the battle rages today for the Bible. It is a satanic attack of the serpent on Scripture. But hold on one second. Because it is also a human attack. Oh, it's also a humanistic attack because Satan uses tools. Wait. The the demonic, the devil, he, he is an agency, therefore he has agents. How'd you miss that all these years? He transforms himself into an angel of light. Or energy, as the case may be. Then, uh, then, you know, we call it the spirit of the age. Then he uses false apostles, false scholarship, and oppositions of science falsely so-called. But we were warned. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Deceivers will come. They will create confusion concerning biblical authority and the certainty of the words of truth. So it will, it will be doubt, but it will also be deception. It will be satanic attack, but it will also be humanistic attack. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Yea, hath God said. How can we have certainty about what God has said today? Don't we have to take our human mind and critique the original language of the Bible or criticize the English text of the Bible? I mean, wasn't the original lost? Uh, Do we have to go around trying to find it in, in the mess of a mass of rotting codex? That, that history left behind. Is, is man true and God a liar all these years? 
We're not left to the doubts of Satan or the deceptions of men. In talking about the advantages the Jews had, Paul says, here in Romans 3, verse 2, they have much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Well, there were lots of oracles in the ancient world. There are a lot of oracles out there today, you know, write, write books and make DVDs. But what if some did not believe? Verse 3, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? I trow not. Some people don't believe. Some professors and pastors don't believe. Does that mean God's been unfaithful to his word? Just because your pastor, priest, or professor appears, or parents can't find it. Does that mean God failed to make it plain? Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Paul replies, God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified, watch, in thy sayings. Sayings. And mightest overcome when thou art judged. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Even if it was quote, uh, written a thousand years before Paul quoted it, Paul still believed it. He was not critical of it. He did not teach us to be. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach us to be. Do not come to the wrong conclusion just because the NIV is the most popular selling translation. Uh, by the way, BTW, as, uh, as Brett says, when Americans reach for a Bible to read, 55% pick up a King, King James. Only 19% pick up an NIV, according to research. I mean, the publishers research this because they got money involved in it. So the authorized version is still the most popular and fastest growing Bible translation. So what's the real objective Satan has in this battle? 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. For I just, you know what? I just gave you the answer. Those, those four things... Those are four healing balms. And the prescription is not take every four hours or every two days or what. No, it's take as necessary. Take as necessary, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Timothy had scripture. Believe it or not, Ripley, that is data. You got to do something with those verses if you are evangelical. Timothy's grandmother knew where to find scripture. Paul says, when you can identify something as Scripture, then you have something that was given by inspiration. So the question is not, is the King James Bible inspired? You know, were the translators inspired? Uh, was it double inspiration? Inspiration of the originals and then inspiration of the translation? No, the question is this, is the King James Bible Scripture? Because if it is, then it is God's words. The original revelation, usually spoken, and when not spoken, the, uh, strictly speaking, in terms of verbal prophecy, uh, dictated. I mean, only three times was it written down, and those were absolutely the exceptions to the rule, right? I mean, God wrote uh, the uh, Ten Commandments on tables of stone. Used angels to do it, but okay. Written. Inspiration covered writing. Uh, God wrote on the plaster wall in Belshazzar's palace. 
And Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger, and that's the only time. That's the only three times that it referred to anything in writing. So inspiration was the speaking, uh, and it was a process of inspiration that was then preserved through its transmission and translation. It was preserved, and all through these verses, Scripture is not limited to the original writing. So let me hit you with this definition. Scripture does not equate to the originals. Scripture is that which was written and recognized as authoritative. Jesus did not have originals when he said, search the scriptures. The disciples did not have originals when they believed the scriptures. Jesus, when he was at synagogue Nazareth, said, hey, bring me the scroll of Isaiah. It wasn't Isaiah's original scroll. Timothy's mother did not have the originals when she taught Timothy's scriptures. Oh, wait, wait. When Paul translated the Hebrew into Greek and then quoted it, he still called that scripture. So scripture's able to exist independent of originals, irrespective of, of time, place, language, intervening years, numbers of copyists, etc., 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 as Yul Brenner used to say. Because scripture is words breathed into by God. That is why it's called inspiration. When you say a word, you breathe. Try saying something without breathing into the words. As a matter of fact, the softer you want to say it, the more you've got to breathe. Carpe diem. Takes a lot of breath. <coughs> you can't say it without breathing. What was breathed out was not a process of superintending. God did not breathe a subjective process that we cannot put our fingers on with certainty. It was not concepts that were breathed out. What he breathed was an objective revelation in verbal communication caught and passed on in word packages. It was not inhaling, but inspiration. It was breathed into, not exhaled. It was not a person who was breathed into. It was not that the writers were inspired. What was breathed into was the words. And so here's our sixth point for study. Whenever we can identify Scripture in our age, in our language, we've got something breathed into by God because just like God put His Spirit into dust and made it a living soul, God puts His breath into the Bible and makes it His living Word. That is how the authority of God is mediated, is manifest, is made known through His Word. N.T. Wright, Ph.D., uh, from Oxford, which means not only does he know Hebrew, <clears throat> Greek, and Latin, but he's an expert in patristics, uh, those imperial church fathers in their writings. And he, so he writes a book, big head that he is, on this topic called uh, The Last Word. And in it, he says, you know, the Bible is not an authority. Only God's an authority. That sounds spiritual, doesn't it? Only God's an authority. Somehow, God mediates his authority through the Bible. I can't really tell you how. Well, I just told you. That is how the authority of God is mediated. And yet, and yet yes, it is just paper and ink. Just like man is only clay. 
But when it gets God's Spirit in it, it gets God's Spirit through and gets God's Spirit on it, it is Scripture. This is theology N.T. Wright doesn't know. So just let me give you a summary. At this spot, before we move on, Psalm 119, verse 89, in, it, you know, in, turn to Psalm 119. In every age, God has given understanding to the spirit of man by inspiration. In this dispensation, he inspired a divine revelation that was written and preserved, which we know as scripture. That scripture, irrespective of age or original language, is what we know as the Word of God. It bears the nature and eternality of God. So let's define biblically what our attitude ought to be then. What should our attitude be? Psalm 119, verse 140. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. Verse 144, the righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. That's saying something. What, what's one thing I want to live? What, what do I need in order to live? Happiness? Well, you know, we're the new Romans. That's what we say. I mean, it's right in our founding documents. We exist so you have freedom to pursue happiness. That's why we exist. David says, no, baby Baba, give me understanding. Uh, verse 152, concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Verse 128, therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Uh, Roman numeral two, let's uh, take a moment on the scribes in their scrolls. Let's imagine, if you will, that instead of this one uh, redback book, that I had a whole stack of Bibles. Let's say I had a whole stack that I, you know, I could... I, I thought about it, and I thought, no, I ain't, ain't going to carry, I ain't going to check a whole separate, you know, piece of luggage to bring all this. But let's, because I know how good your imagination is, and, and so imagine that I've got a stack of Bibles, good news, NIV, uh, uh, New English Bible, New American Standard, a Revised Standard, Living Bible, Berkeley Bible, Phillips. What's reality on the ground? Am I saying God could not do the same thing now? He did in 1611. No. Am I saying he could never give us an eighth printed revision in the line of the authorized version? No. But the reality is he hasn't. And I know he hasn't from looking at two things, the evidence and the alternatives. As to the alternatives, you better redneckanize. The dilemma is not in choosing among those 200 English translations. The issue is not the translations. It is the Hebrew and the Greek behind the translation. Mainly, the issue is the source of the text behind the New Testament. So the choice in between the AV and the NIV, the TEV, the ESV, the TLC, the, the, uh, uh, or anything else, the message. Here's our seventh point for study. There are not 200 choices because there are only two main sources. A God-preserved text and this red-back book right here, a man-made one. King James Bible comes from one source. How, however you want to spin it, this is what the scholars say. King James Bible comes from one source. No other modern translation comes from that same source. Now, I could segregate out majority uh, texts, uh, whatever that, uh, you know, uh, un unpopular, un un really, I don't know where you can find it, on the internet, I guess, Amazon, 
um, version f- from uh, the uh, TR uh, and New King James. Uh, so I could talk about New King, New King James and MEV separately, but still, because uh, they're, they, they're still based on man-made texts, not God-preserved ones. Uh, all other modern English translations come from a different Greek text than the King James Version, and all this happened just within the last 150 years. Aren't you lucky? How do we get in this dilemma? Are you asking good questions this morning? It was forced on us by the alliance of modern scholars and publishing houses. The modern textual critic and the modern Bible publisher, I mean, if you want to go in for conspiracy theories, take your tin hat off and get real. They conspired together to increase profits, and it ends up confusing the church. And I'm not saying that was their intent or motive, because the conspiracy is never the conspirators you think it is, via what you read on the internet. The conspiracy is always the world of flesh and the devil. They are always the true conspirators. So I'm not saying that it was these guys' intent or their motive or they did it consciously or they're not sincere, although it could be all of the above. There are two sources, two separate lines of Bibles. The textual critics themselves divide it that way. They call it two families. The lines are very different. When you consider the doctrine of inspiration, preservation, and the Word of God itself is at stake. Because these two lines of Bibles represent two entirely different approaches to the Bible including two philosophies of inspiration and two methods of translation. On the one hand, you have a Bible given to us by people who believe God gave his word and then preserved it. And I think that could be said regardless whether they were Puritan or Anglican. After all, it was the Catholics who had a ban on the Bible. On the other side, you got Bibles that are a product of human opinion and rationalization. Oh, and human scholarship rooted in human skepticism. So on one side, uh, you got to understand the satanic attack on Scripture. But on the other side, do not be willingly ignorant or oblivious to the human involvement. Now, I'll tell you up front, they will not allow the arguments I am making to you today. So let's, let's delineate the debate into two major categories. First letter A, the debates regarding history of textual criticism. First category, number one, the genealogical method of classifying those manuscripts. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's say Paul wrote an original manuscript. A manuscript's called a manuscript because it is handwritten. Mano a mano. Uh, handwritten. Uh, hand, hand Um, It was the days before the printing press, so up until 1450-ish AD, everything was a manuscript. I mean, that's back when your parents went to school. So so let me hit you with this definition. The original copy is called the autograph. What if another church wanted a copy? Well, they made one. And you know how it is. When copies start getting in the circle, you know, when they set notes out front in the lobby, everybody wants a 
copy the notes, and then they got to pick up a copy for, you know, somebody who's not there, and, and, and so pretty soon they're making copies of copies, and, and more copies are made, and more variations among the copies, and most of them are in, unintentional, they're very easy to spot, but some, the significant ones were deliberately made by ancient textual critics. I, so, and now, I know you don't believe me. Read Philip Comfort. Read Philip Wesley Comfort and any of his books on, on encountering the manuscripts. Uh, he won't tell you this, but I will. They were unbelievers. They were heretics. They were cult leaders. They were made by the people Paul warns you about here in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. And, 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 you know, the hardest variant to catch is the one where they leave something out because you would not know that it was ever there. So they take out 1 John 5, 7, and they take out the first half of John 8, and they take out the last half of Mark 16, and they take out references to the, the deity of Christ, and they corrupt the word of God on purpose to fit their theological heresy. If a man believed Christ was only God up until the cross, but he lost his deity and became a mere mortal once he was on the cross, then he would remove references indicating the deity of Christ while he was on that cross. Poor Ahemplo. He would not let the dying thief call Jesus Lord. Now, we know from what God, did, God preserved, and actually even from some of what history preserved in certain places. Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Essenes. We know from that that even 100 to 200 years before Christ, key teachers with key tools preserve Scripture in key places. I mentioned that I did not bring the uh, Isaiah Scroll. The facsimile I have of the Isaiah scroll. Isaiah is, a, Isaiah is a big book. So Isaiah scroll is written, well, they think 100 B.C. It was obviously sealed into that cave by 70 A.D. when the Romans came through and turned the place out. And uh, the earliest Hebrew manuscript of the Old Testament is something like 900 A.D., so a thousand years separate that Isaiah scroll and what we have in the Masoretic text, and it's a big book, and there are maybe half a dozen minor differences. So since the church was based on the model of the synagogue, and somebody was tasked with transmitting the Torah down to the attenders, so much so, and I've been to a synagogue before, so much so they have to have two witnesses stand beside the scribe who is reading it to the congregation, then I will say that by A.D. 200, scriptoria were established in key cities with key teachers using key scrolls and new testament manuscripts started to be mass produced at least along the same line as torah scrolls were 
Now, I used a word there, you may not know it, so let me hit you with the definition. Uh, scriptorium is simply a copy room for scribes. Since they had no copy machine, they had a copy room, just like maybe when you were growing up, your dishwasher was your mama. You, you had no dishwasher, so you had a mama. In the 1000s, Abbot Paul Ken established a scriptorium at St. Albans. As, as he said, that way rotting documents could be saved from oblivion. The plan of a monastery from the early 800s describes the benches and desks of the scribes. They were guardians of the letters. Uh, in the 500s, the word scriptorium was used for the metal stylus used to write with. But false teachers had as great a motivation, satanic, for getting their version of the New Testament manuscripts out as well, especially in key cities like Alexandria, where Gunther Zunt says, by the last half of the 100s, the bishopric there had a scriptorium, and Bruce Metzger says, you couldn't hardly find really a true Christian in Alexandria for all the heretical cults. There were. So today there exists over 5,800 copies of manuscripts, all with variations called variant readings. Textual critics in the late 1800s felt that these copies fell into mainly three basic groups based on family relationships among the readings. Philip Comfort talks about four, but then uh, there are caveats with regard to that. So now follow this. The modern scholar looks back at that and he says those three groupings of manuscripts represent three types of texts. One is an Eastern text centered around Harvest Baptist in Antioch of Syria. Another text centered around Bob Jones University in Caesarea. That really wasn't even its own text because... What we do is we take all the manuscripts where somebody really was kind of giving a paraphrase. We just put them in a pile and say, okay. Origen took his text with him from Alexandria to Caesarea, around Jerusalem area. And, you know, that, that's where that idea came from. The third is what they call a Western text centered in, you know, around Rockhurst Catholic University in, in Alexandria, Egypt. Most scholars today reject anything but the Western Alexandrian text line and the Eastern Byzantine text line as being true families, so they only allow two lines of Bibles. Now, these are the scholars, so I do not know why anyone would criticize us for teaching that there are two lines of Bibles. So don't get confused yet, because we just got started. We, got a, we, we put this on a chart on your handout. Two texts produce two lines of Bibles. Here is how the rational Greek mind operates. Even though over 80% of the readings are, are Eastern or Byzantine or traditional texts, it is allowed just one vote. The Alexandrian text has equal weight. It has greater weight if you, if you separate it into Alexandrian and Western uh, because then, then it gets a double vote. Now, when, you know, what, what is called the Western text, do not think John Wayne. I'm just saying, when I talk about the Western text, do not think John Wayne here. Uh, 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 it has a louder voice than the received text. That way, they overthrow the readings found in the majority of manuscripts. And I'm not talking about spelling errors. I am talking about corruptions. 
Scholars took a family of manuscripts corrupted early on by popular Gnostic teachers. N.T. Origen, who was always right. Pope Bell the Great, who was a generous orthodoxist. And Augustine Stanley, who had a megachurch in the South. And they used that family, or that line, if you will, to overthrow the majority of manuscripts. And as they did so, they set up certain protocols to follow in their emerging science of textual criticism. These are the canons of textual criticism. A canon, let me hit you with the definition. A canon is a guideline for the judgment of scholars. So textual critics invented their rules as they went along. In other words, the rules do not come from principalizing the Bible. These are not Bible rules. They do not do like we do. And take Jeremiah 36 from the Bible itself as an example or illustration of how it should be done. The basic rules critics invent are called canons. Let me point out the key canons of textual criticism because these are the rules that textual critics and scholars actually play by. And what we are teaching here in a very uh, short time is the basic fundamentals of textual criticism. It is the way this modern Greek text was constructed and the way, this is an eclectic text, but also if you're thinking ESV, it's the way that a reasoned eclectic text is constructed, which automatically says, these guys were unreasonable. Well, well whatever. Okay. Well, all I'm saying is, do not try this at home. Most pastors don't even know the rules when they start arguing about the Word of God. It's a shell game, and they don't know how it's played, so they get snookered. I don't even know what snookered is. But the first, letter A, first, there's an external canon. Manuscripts have to be weighed, not counted. That's another way of saying we will overthrow the majority reading God preserved through history by the priesthood of believers. I mean, and I, and I add that phrase, by the priesthood of believers, because who else cared about mass-producing correct manuscripts? And we'll overthrow that, and we'll do it by assigning more weight to an older manuscript under the assumption the older one must be closer to the original. Now, don't even get me sidetracked on how the modern te eclectic textual criti criticism is skeptical about whether there was an original or how original it was anyway. Uh, because remember, once you enter the skeptic zone, you are dealing with evolutionists because that is falsely called scientific. So scholars refuse to concede that maybe it is old and still exists because it was tampered with and therefore not used. So God snookered the snookerers by snookering the imperial church to commission 50 corrupt copies. I mean, this is God's, this is, this is, this is God's sense of irony right here. He snookered the imperial church and this guy named Constantine who wanted to take the name Christian without really being born again into commissioning 50 copies of the Bible, one for, as, as Pastor Mark said, one for each capital. And they were the corrupt ones, the wrong line. But because of the climate conditions in Egypt and because Eusebius was a follower of, of 
Origen, who had been follower of Pamphilus, who had been follower of Hesekius, who had been uh, all, all the way back to the, uh, to the guys who were trying to preserve the words of Aristotle and Plato. Then Alexandria was a hotbed of Gnosticism, religious heresy. They, they refused to concede that maybe it's, it, it is newer but more reliable because most churches with the most believers were taking care to copy it. So second, letter B, internal canon. The reading to be preferred is the one that best explains the others. That is the genealogical principle, which means we view the evidence in terms of text types or families of manuscripts or what you and I call lines of Bibles. And if we can hypothetically imagine a way that our preferred reading will explain the existence of the majority text reading, then we don't have to follow that vile, what, what, did, what did Pastor Mark say? That villainous received text. Third letter C, there are transcriptional probabilities, like the more difficult the reading is, that was probably the original one. The more stupid it is, that must have been what they came up with first. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? Uh, get uh, 1 Timothy 6, your left hand, 2 Timothy 3, and your right. The assumption is no one would purposely mess with God's word. They were simply trying to smooth it because it's evolution. It had to start off rough and almost unintelligible. And those Byzantine scribes, they, were trying, they added to it so they could smooth it. So what this guideline means is the more absurd the reading, the more true it must be. Nobody would ever take the Word of God and try and make sound stupid. At least no one except 2 Timothy 3, 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. Now as Janes and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, therefore, look at what they are, reprobate concerning the faith. 1 Timothy 6, verse 5, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. And this is key because modern textual critical scholars do not believe those verses apply to them. They do not believe those verses apply to how they must view the evidence. So to them, the more difficult it is to explain a reading, then the greater chance it was the original one. After all, those apostles were no scholars like us. So the original reading must be the one that says the apostle made a mistake in what he was trying to say. Those guys were only fishermen. Okay, I'm, I'm unmasking for you the, the real assumptions of the critics. Uh, fourth letter D, tr another transcriptional pro uh, probability. The shorter reading is the more pro probable original reading. Now, they have other external canons related to intrinsic probabilities, and they sound just as stupid like this. The reading that is counter to church usage, that's the best one. The disharmonious reading, that's the best one. The less familiar, that's the best one. The reading that seems to be ungrammatical, that's the best one. The reading that includes unfamiliar words, that's the best one. The reading that is susceptible to a heretical interpretation, that's the best one. So you catch the drift. All those nasty little Byzantine scribes ever did was think up ways to add to and smooth out the Bible. Critics call that conflation. Let me hit you with a definition there. To conflate means to confuse and then blend two readings into a composite and to harmonize it and make it look like everything cross-references. 
Yes, my pr- pretty, we believe in evolution. That means it started off as a dinosaur. The New Testament filled out its doctrine over centuries of time. So the shorter, more heretical reading must be the correct one. Let me give you my three canons on the canons. I want you to notice three things. See if you think my canons hit the mark. Okay, you with me? First letter A, that the more absurd reading is the original is only correct if you don't accept verbal inspiration. You're saying the writers must be ignoramuses, therefore they must have written incorrect things. So you automatically are confessing you don't believe in verbal inspiration. Second letter B, the shorter reading is the original, is only correct if you do not accept continuous preservation. You are assuming the Holy Spirit fell asleep. He allowed his word to be lost for at least 14 centuries. And only lately did we refine it. Bully for us. Letter C. That the older reading is a more probable original is only correct if you venerate tradition. You are superstitiously following a relic, which is exactly what the manuscript in the Vatican was. Because even the critics will tell you it's the worst one of the two between it and the one found on Sinai. It was a relic to be venerated. And it's amazing me that they want lately discovered manuscripts not in common use for centuries, and yet they refuse a late majority received text. They venerate an older corrupt set of manuscripts and yet reject old school traditional Reformation text. We say the traditional text is authoritative. Here's why the traditional received text is authoritative. The traditional Eastern Byzantine majority text is easier to read, and the original was given by inspiration. It's longer and, quote, all the words, like we saw in Jeremiah 36, because they were preserved in history. It was used and worn out, so copies we have are in the majority, but not later in date. Now, those are all theological arguments, and they are the ideology between our theology and bibliology, which, by the way, the modern textual critics and scholars reject those arguments, but so do modern evangelical theologians and pastors. What I am giving you is biblical theology and ideological arguments. But another thing I want you to know, this is practical, because it ain't, it, it ain't preaching if it ain't practical. I'm not preaching to you if I've not made it practical. So in practice, almost every time, you have to consider a variant reading in the New Testament. You can sit in judgment and you can make your own decision on the words of God because the rules cancel each other out. In other words, the harder reading is the longer one. The shorter reading is the easier one. That means the textual critic is left left to sit in judgment and decide as he chooses based on subjective criteria and his own subjective biases and presuppositions. The conclusion of this genealogical method and their canons of textual criticism is that the Textus Receptus, the received text, the traditional text was deemed villainous, vile, unreliable. So the manuscript discovery starting in the 1830s and 40s led to letter B, a disaster. Two opposing philosophies. The disaster was the philosophy of skepticism engendered 
and ultimately the publication which came out of those new manuscripts. In 1870, those two scholars, Pastor Mark talked about them last night, Westcott and Hort, they published a new Greek text following a genealogical method of manuscript classification, although... Although, even the textual critics today will tell you they didn't really do that, but they said, said they did that so they could overthrow the TR. So based on the discovery of those two early Greek manuscripts and incorporating the canyon, canon of textual criticism that they invented, uh, 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 they, they, they overthrew what was old, brought in something new. Really, all they did was collate Aleph and B and make a combined Greek text of those two. Sinaiticus and Vedic, you know, the word that I shouldn't say in here. So get, so get real, but wait, that's not all. They used the appearance of this Greek text to call for a, as Pastor Mark pointed out last night, a revision of the King James Bible, because here's our eighth point for study. A new text must always result in a new translation. Oh, now I think you're getting it. They assembled more scholars, and in 1881, they come up with the RV, the Revised Version of the Bible. The Americans, being more conservative in theology and wanting a more literal translation, they were not pleased. But, but they were calm and carried on because they signed an agreement that they would not issue a competing translation for 20 years. So, in 1901, the American Standard Version came out. Two philosophies come out of this disaster. Number one, the true text has never been lost but was preserved. That's one of the two competing philosophies. Originals are irrelevant compared to the identification of Scripture. So what we see is the true text was faithfully preserved through the priesthood of believers down through the centuries. Okay, wait. At the bottom line... A correct view of biblical authority rests on a believing view of the attributes of God. Pastor Brett talked about that. The, the attribute of his providence having eyes and not being blind fate. In this method, the textual criticism for publication of the Reformation text was a science with the goal of finding out what had been preserved continuously in an unbroken succession or what was standardized and approved by the priesthood of believers. It believes in the supernatural, it trusts in God's overriding providence, and it observes the hand of the Holy Spirit in history. The second, second competing philosophy, this is number two, says the text is part of an evolutionary process continuing today. It continues down to today. What was true was lost very early on. It is the same philosophy held by every cult group in America. They teach truth was lost in the first century. Only their founder recently discovered it. Bruce Metzger says textual criticism is an art as well as a science because it is based on probabilities. Ouch! But if textual criticism is an art as well as a science, there is no objective, externally viable accountability over what the textual critic or scholar produces. And we can therefore justify the capricious prejudices of unsaved people who are now producing the standard Greek text. That is not what happens in the history of the traditional text. By 1633, scholars came to the same evaluation of the evidence. So much so 
that in the space of about 160 printed editions since 1516, they were able to deliver to the world the text received by all with nothing changed or corrupted. So you better recognize, prior to 1870, this Greek text never existed. It never existed, standardized and printed in one spot on the face of planet Earth. Their text, their new text, the Alexandrian text, didn't exist until they came up with it by collating those two old manuscripts. Now, so maybe it was settled in hell, I don't know, but it was not settled in heaven, it was not settled on Earth. But the Byzantine majority text did exist. It was prevalent every place, stacked to the ceiling, sticking in your face. And the new text preserves the worst corruptions of thousands of scattered manuscripts all drawn together. So Westcott and Hort took the majority text as a basis, then always replaced it wherever Aleph and B agreed with each other, and many times replaced it even when they disagreed among themselves. Old MacDonald made a text, eeny, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. And, and that method of textual criticism is called, let me hit you with the definition, eclectic. United Bible Societies. This happens to be my third edition that I, uh, you know, was taught Greek from in Bible college, and it is an eclectic text. ESV uses an, a reason eclecticism, which means selecting what appears to be best from various sources, but in this case does not mean to pick and choose from the manuscript evidence. No, it means to pick and choose between the Greek manuscripts on one hand, what they call internal evidence on the other, meaning, well, which one's shorter, which, which, one's, you know, which one's more stupid, and the subjective biases and opinions of themselves as critics on the other hand. So practically speaking, they made up their Bible as they went along. Their text never existed before they published it. Five unsaved people, the originators of the modern eclectic, eclectic text, they chose what was going to be in your NIV. So this disaster, why? Because never before in the history of Christianity was Satan able to do to God's word what he has done through textual criticism. As a matter of fact, and this is our ninth point for study, centuries of persecution and destruction did not wipe out our English Bible, but a few decades of manipulation and corruption has stolen its authority. Turn to 1 Timothy 6. That is why manuscript evidence and this conference is so important, because even the weight of the entire persecutions of the Roman emperors was not able to accomplish against the Bible what has been done in the last 150 years. We now have a relative text, not an absolute text, not a certain text. Every year, new manuscripts are found, new scholars are crowned, new evaluations are made, peer-reviewed. And so new translations are copyrighted and produced, or old ones are revised and renamed. So you'll buy it? You know, everybody does that. Every manufacturer does that, don't they? You buy a certain model refrigerator. Well, you know, Samsung or whoever is going is to change that model the next year so you can't just return it and get a new one and say, well, you know, this one is defective. I want that one. No, once you got it, baby Baba, it is, it is yours. Warranty applies for a certain amount of time, but it doesn't continue on into perpetuity. And so they do that. So you had a, okay, you had a living Bible, but now you need a new living translation. 
you had a revised standard version, you now need a new revised standard version, and then you need a ESV. And, 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 and so the discovery and the disaster lead to letter C, a dilemma. Which Bible? 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so-called. That's why we are in the Laodicean age today. This is why the Philadelphian age Bible scholars did not reproduce themselves by discipleship. Because at first they didn't seem a major issue. There are, there are just two choices, AV or the RV. But it still cut the heart out of godly men seeing themselves reproduced in the next generation. Why? Because they accepted this brand new text and this new philosophy of communication and this new translation theory uncritically as science. And you know what? If you don't start out with biblical assumptions, you don't come to dispensational theology. Therefore, you know, Dallas Seminary, you've got you've to be a progressive dispensationalist because after all, we got a progressive Bible. And they do the same thing in psychology. They do the same thing in theology. They did not criticize its assumptions, its philosophy, or its methods. They did not examine its original sources. As Pastor Brett talked about today and, you know, talked about, uh, and Pastor Mark about Westcott and Hort, they, they criticized into doubt and distrust the authorized version passed down to them. Now, truth hurts, but it was a disaster. Not initially, because God's people rejected it by and large. Even today, more people go ogle King James Bible verses than anything else. You know, go ogle. When they get on go ogle, 45% of the time, they're looking at King James Bible verses, only 24% of the time NIV verses. So there was by no means a massive movement to the new Bibles made from the new text. But as years went by, the advertising hype got more and more effective, and things started to change, and all types of translations sprung up. And there are over 200 translations, but they only come from really just one Greek text. And let me say something about what's most popular uh, sometimes among circles we touch most closely, and that's the ESV. They used a, used a recent eclecticism. So uh, the ESV translation has been a process of working its way back to receive text readings and the King James type translations. So much so, they proclaimed in 2016 that they had made 52 small adjustments and now the text was perfect and it would be, quote, unchanged forever in perpetuity, unquote. Well, I won't tell you what hit the fan. Go, go ask Brother Brett, Brother Brett Bartlett. He'll, he won't have any, he'll tell you what hit the fan. But, uh, but, uh, but after that, before the end of that year, they had to take it all back. By the way, one of the translators of the NIV made the comment, the only version of the Bible that's permanent is the King James. Booyah! 
the dilemma today is which Bible's the Word of God? Any of the above? All of the above? None of the above? Those are the only choices. If it's any of the above, how do I find it? What canons do I use? This is letter D. Let's look at, say, just a word about the defenders before we go. You say, well, didn't anybody criticize this brand new Greek text at the time of its introduction? Yes. Yes, one of the foremost defenders of the received text was Dean Bergen, Dina, Dina Chichester. Uh, he, he wrote a book in 1861 on the inspiration of the Bible. Then he wrote a book proving the last half of Mark 16 should be in the Bible, and any text that called itself a Bible and didn't have it was false. He showed from textual criticism itself the reasons why. He even wrote a book against the revised version called The Revision Revised. His associate, Henry Miller, wrote a book on textual criticism. Another scholar, Herman Hoskier, wrote a book called Codex B and Its Allies, criticizing those two manuscripts. The defenders showed how the traditional text was the true text, and the true text was preserved in the majority of manuscripts. The received text, the one inherited from the Eastern Church, was preserved through the priesthood of believers. And while Satan and Rome were able to kill almost all true Bible believers, they were not able to eliminate all their Bibles. These defenders showed this through a variety of evidences. They showed the unbroken historical continuity over 15 centuries. The Holy Spirit did not fall down on his job. God's people used what came to be known as the Byzantine family of manuscripts or line of Bibles. You know, the dean shredded the modern text. Scholars ignored him, just like they ignore um, intelligent design arguments today regarding creation. When the new translations came along, true Bible believers started examining them. They said, look, you know, all modern translations uh, really form their own family. Look at it this way. They all leave out the name of Satan in the same place. Uh, they all remove similar references to the deity of Christ and the blood of Christ. They all change the word hell to grave. They all remove the word Lucifer from Satan. Then the defenders started looking at the two scholars, Westcott and Hort. They found they were enamored with philosophy and mysticism. They were involved in occult spiritualist organizations, as has already been mentioned, contrary to Old Testament prohibitions. But then, who doesn't use divination or clairvoyance in their counseling today? So in the final analysis, this brings us to letter F, the de, uh, letter E, the decision. What are we going to make of all this? What answers are we going to give? Three factors favor the received text. Number one, the correct manuscripts are the ma in the majority. Of all the Greek manuscripts still in existence, how many of them belong to the traditional text? Oh, and 95%, certainly 80 to 95%. They are in harmony with one another. They have easier readings. They have longer readings. Their weight should be counted for what it is. Your only alternative is to give up on the authority of the Bible. Because here's our 10th point for study. Inspiration means nothing without preservation. And preservation means nothing without inscripturation. And scripture may be found in the original language or through a translation besides that, besides that. Number two, the received text does go back earlier than the other liner families. The northern climate and common regular use simply didn't preserve early examples. Plus, number three, the received text still has a variety of early evidences to back it up, like versions, church fathers, and lectionaries. It was used in North Africa, in Asia, in Europe. The Alexandrian text was used mostly just one place, 
Egypt, a type of the world. Now that means something to you, that means nothing to the scholars. But then they don't cross-reference their Bible anyway. The received text was also translated into other languages very early on. It was translated into the Syriac Peshito. It was translated in Africa into the Coptic. It was translated into the Old Latin before Jerome's Latin, but there are no translations that come out of the Alexandrian text as a whole. Then there are the Imperial Church Fathers in 87,000 scripture references, and the majority of those quotations are taken from what is today known as the received text. There are more than 2,000 lectionaries. All of them come from the received text because the church of God had by then rejected the Alexandrian text, so when they did a Sunday school lesson, it was always King James. Number four, the traditional text was received and believed by God's people for over 1,000 years. Compare that with how little the Alexandrian text was used, how long it sat dormant and undiscovered until Satan brought it back just at the right time whenever Christians wanted a revolution to put them on the same footing with Darwin, revolution in biology, evolution, Freud, revolution in counseling, psychotherapy, and Marx, revolution in politics, called socialism, communism. So in the final analysis, number five, in the alternative line representing the Alexandrian family, Codex Sinaiticus leaves out 4,000 words from the Gospels alone, adds 1,000 words, and changes the reading another 1,500 places. I mean, it is so filled with mistakes. They calculate at least three editors worked on it, some of whom must not have known Greek because all the nonsense readings. There were so many corrections, it had multiple correctors. But when you begin looking at it in detail, you find it adds six new books to the Bible while containing our earliest copy of the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. How about Codex Vaticanus? It leaves out a thousand sentences, it adds 500 words, it changes words around 2,000 times, and 17,000 times it differs from its brother found in the Sinai in terms of variant readings. And check this, it leaves out five books of the New Testament and adds five more that are not supposed to be there. Well, no wonder the Pope didn't want to poop with it. <laughs> so he said, look, get this out of the bathroom, put it, in the, put it in the back closet someplace, take it to the cellar. Finally, here's our 11th point for study. Bad copies were rejected by God's people, but harbored, harbored by sacerdotalists and and superstitionists. So letter F, here's the deal. Let me summarize this session by saying our real problem with modern translations is just threefold. This is the problem with modern versions. Number one, they're not a product of the operation of the Holy Spirit through the priesthood of believers. Number two, they have a faulty text to translate from. So if I'm a Christian who presupposes the Bible to be the mind of God and assumes God is totally consistent with himself in Scripture and in history, you cannot tell me five unsaved men who made up the word of God as they went along can give me the textual basis for a new translation. I can't walk with you that far. Doesn't add up. Not biblically, not historically, not even rationally or logically. Number three, they have a false philosophy of translating work. Modern Bibles tend to translate the Hebrew and Greek idiomatically. Uh, and that was not the case with King James which is why it can seem harder 
to read, it's more accurate. Back, turn back to Psalm 119. The modern translator does not want his work to be recognized as a translation at all. Now, Paul says the natural man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. Modern translators say their translation should be immediately understandable to modern men and women without the operation of preaching of the Holy Spirit. It's a difference between two completing philosophies. If you do not approach your Bible in English the same way David approached his Bible, some of which by then was centuries old, then you do not have a book worthy of belief. You do not have a God worthy of worship. Psalm 119, verse 31. What does David say? I have stuck unto thy testimonies. Well, that's how I'm not going to be put to shame. That's how I won't stand naked in a glorified body or otherwise. Verse 116. Uphold me according unto thy word that I may live and let me not be ashamed of my hope. Verse 159, consider how I love thy precepts. I mean, you know I love them because I follow them, and since I follow them and love them, then you're going to quicken me. You're going to bring me back from the dead. You're going to give me the motivation I need. It's my willer that's broke. You're going to give me the will. It's my want to that doesn't work. You're going to give me the want to, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. Verse 161, princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in all thy word. So you have a decision to make. Uh, tomorrow we're going to look at the reality in history, and, uh, and, the, and we're going to transition to the actual topic of translation. My time is up. I thank you for yours. I'll turn it over to whoever is going to tell you what to do next.